this morning of the meeting of the newly enlightened Buddha with the ascetic Upaka on the road between uh, Uruvela and Gaya. This is um, a, uh, always been a favorite story, always raises a, a little smile when I think of it, because it, it uh, One can see the. Uh, one can imagine very easily these two wanderers meeting on the road, and this monk being very struck by the the Buddha's presence. This uh, tremendous aura of serenity and uh, clarity must have been very striking to him. And then um, politely asks, you know. Um, what kind of practice do you do? Who's your teacher? What do you? Uh, what have you done to uh, attain this wonderful state of of uh, serenity, radiance that you have? And then the Buddha makes this uh, amazing proclamation: of, uh, "I am the All Transcender, the All Knowing, the only enlightened being in the world. I alone." Um, I'm all enlightened, there's nobody who can call me, who I can call my teacher, so on, so forth. Sounds a bit like uh, Darth John. <laughs> His last book was entitled The Divine Emergence of the World Teacher. Made me think of it. <laughs> but anyway, the, uh, there you have this... Uh, this kind of um, announcement, the Buddha proclaiming quite innocently. Well, you know, the man asked, so um, tell him, you know, what uh, what's true. So uh, he was not trying to exaggerate or or impress, but just going kind to of state the facts. And um, and. Uh, and yet this kind of declaration, the result that it had, was that um, this monk thought, you know, this guy's way over the top, or he's had too much datura, or uh, he's obviously had some kind of nice experience, good experience, but uh, you know, whether he's the, the only all-enlightened being in the world, that's, uh, that's another story. Also made me think of a, a tale that uh, uh, one of our, our monks uh, once told me of a, an old uh, an old buddy of his. This is uh, we're we're going back in time now to the late sixties, early seventies, and this uh, this buddy of his was called Lucifer Sam. 
And Lucifer Sam was at one point he was head boy of Wellington, very posh public school. But he was very uh, tall, a uh, very powerful character, very dark with a long nose, and so he looked like Satan. Hence, he was known as Lucifer Sam. And by the time he'd finished at school, he became a um, uh, he became a drug dealer. Is, uh, he used to deal LSD, and this fellow was—he uh, was a bit of an uh, outrageous character, and uh, he um, he used to try and keep keep people in line, or people who he, he fell out with, or he wanted to to um, give a hard time to. He used to uh, spike um, their food or their drinks. This is uh, vernacular for for planting. Uh, the, uh, doses of LSD unwittingly into people's food and drink, so that suddenly you find yourself off on a, uh, a little trip or a large one. And so, and he used to threaten people with this quite regularly. So people were a bit frightened of him. He was a bit of a, a case. Anyway, one of his, um, the recipients of one of his uh, um, little tricks, decided that. Uh, that uh, this guy needed a lesson. He was doing this a few too many times to a few too many people. He said, this guy needs a lesson. And so um, he injected into, uh, through the cork of a, sh a bottle of champagne, something like 20 or 30 uh, doses, full-scale doses of LSD, enough for 20 or 30 LSD trips, through the cork, and then sent this bottle uh, with a courier and a little note saying, from an admirer. And uh, Sam, not only being a bit of a, a um, aggressive case, was also a bit of a greedy and selfish case. And I think the motivation had been to put a lot in, just so that he'd get a good, a good proportion of it. But Sam drank the lot. <laughs> and uh, the reason why I tell it, because the result of him drinking the whole lot was that he then declared himself to be the Messiah, <laughs> and uh, took off to Glastonbury uh, to take up residence as the avatar of the New Age, with a substantial following of people, actually. Um, this was the late 60s, so he went off uh, being the all-transcendent, the all-knowing. <laughs> He came, he came down again about two or three years later. But uh, one could see that uh, Upaka has this uh, same sort of impression of this very uh, illuminated being, but uh, off on some kind of uh, ego-maniacal trip. So the Buddha realized after Upaka had said, well, good for you, friend, and that... Uh, left him alone and walked off in a different direction, the Buddha, being one who was quick to learn, decided this was not the right approach. <coughs> and so then by the time he got to, to meet with a group of five bhikkhus in uh, Isipatana, then uh, he decided to teach suffering and the end of suffering and uh, changed his approach from that of being like a proclamation of absolute truth 
to uh, a path of, uh, of self-inquiry, self-discovery. And this was uh, the, uh, the track that he followed for the, uh, uh, the rest of his teaching career. That he stayed, I mean, he would occasionally make um, asseverations of truth, great uh, statements of one sort or another, just affirmations of, of, uh, of truth or ultimate reality. But the main thrust of his teaching and his, uh, his instruction to people in a very greater part was that of uh, teaching a, a method of, of self-examination self-inquiry, learning from, from our own experience. And today, with the, uh, this impending war brewing in the, in the Middle East, these great armies, heavily armed, just waiting for the uh, the signal to begin. And obviously, I find that in my, my own mind today a lot of thoughts of war arising, a lot of uh, tendency, urgency of the mind to go into thinking about the conflict and uh, why it happens and... and uh, it could be avoided, and I could watch very easily how uh, the uh, importance and and um, the suffering surrounding the uh, the uh, a war on that kind of scale. It demands our attention. It seems to grab our attention. It seems to be um, irresponsible to not be thinking about it. That the mind, I could see, were being pulled again and again. Well, what about this? What about that? But um, one could see also that uh, this, uh, to simply follow that, to believe in that, is really ignoring the reality of the situation because one has to recognize that this is really just the thoughts of war. And that uh, the more that we uh, just believe in the thought, pick up the thought, and get immersed, enmeshed in the, the value system of the thoughts, and feel that there's some solution to the war in what we think, then the war goes on and on and on and on and on. And you realize that, uh, that uh, the, real, the real problem uh, can only be solved by learning to see those thoughts, those feelings in that proper perspective. I remember the, uh, a little poem came to mind by a, a, um, one of the great old characters of the Buddhism in the, in the West, a man called Paul Reps wrote a book called Zen Flesh, Zen Bones, and this was a very little poem that he wrote. Uh, and it goes, Drinking a cup of dream... Drinking a cup of green tea, I stopped the war.
drinking a cup of green tea, I stopped the war. Another beautiful reflection on life. I remember when I first read it, I thought, well, that's ridiculous. <laughs> How can anybody stop a war by drinking a cup of tea? This is absurd. But then you realize that um, what we're talking about is uh, the war in our minds. Because externally, your know, war is going to be going on all the time. There's always uh, conflict, struggle, competition of some sort in the world, either near us or far away, either on a, a massive uh, a scale of a massive battle, like that which is brewing in the Middle East, or just the struggle for existence of the creatures, the little birds and, and insects, animals around us. Out doing a walking meditation, I see this uh, this blackbird frantically hunting for worms everywhere, turning over leaves, poking the ground, listening, hunting all the time. But that struggle between creatures, the struggling of the natural world, the animal world, the plant world struggling for life, battling against the elements, looking for food, fearing uh, attack, fearing bad weather. These, this is the war uh, that is always raging in the sensory world. And so that the war that, uh, that Paul Raps was talking of was this, this, uh, this very uh, war that we engage in that is, is real and is crucial to our life as long as we attach to it. And that in that moment when there's no attachment, when we let go, then the war stops. We doesn't mean to say the world freezes, that, uh, that insults and uh, missiles are not being thrown around, that one creature is not eating another, somewhere in the world. But what it means is that the, uh, the existence of this as, as Dhamma is recognized, that this is the way things are. This is how things are. This is the sensory world. And in that, that moment of recognition, of realization, of non-attachment, then we see that you know, that which is real, that which is true, knows the emptiness of the sensory world. To think that, that there's something that we can do which is going to stop every war in the world, every conflict, is, is very much wishful thinking. Right? The Buddha appeared in the world, and even the, the, the birth and the enlighten, enlightenment of such a one as the, as the Buddha, all-enlightened being, perfectly enlightened. Even he, in his own time, his presence was not enough to stop the wars, even in his own part of India. Still there was squabbles and border disputes and, and fighting that, going, that went on. Uh, 
there was a lull during most of his life, but soon, uh, soon after, that everyone was at their, each other's throats again. And to think that something's going to happen, something <coughs> can happen, uh, some kind of golden age can come whereby every problem is, is solved, where no other, um, no conflict will ever arise between people or between creatures. This is, is a vain hope, and that in, in Buddhism you never find that. But it's a, it's a powerful part of our idealism as human beings. There's actually, I read, it, uh, I read of a, a society that is, uh, uh, has been established to try and uh, initiate vegetarianism as a universal standard for animals as well as people. Now, can you imagine trying to teach every, every bird in the world not to eat insects? <laughs> Get the lions to stop eating uh, zebras and wildebeests, and you know, I can imagine every uh, the, uh, every creature in the world being discouraged from from uh, eating any other creature. I mean, it's a very very uh, high, wonderful principle, and these people uh, have established this society in all good faith. But uh, I mean, something in my heart says. Ain't no way this is ever going to happen. If you can get the people to stop eating animals, that would be great. But uh, try and persuade the animal world to stop it. It's just—it's not going to be that way. And so, uh, in Buddhism, the Buddha's teaching refers uh, solely to this transformation on the internal level. It's also something actually that. Uh, was the the great dispute between uh, in the, around the life of Jesus between the the Christians and the Orthodox Jews because the Christians said the Messiah has come the Messiah is here and uh, the Jews said well if the Messiah was here then uh, the world will be totally transformed and I look out my window and it's the same as it was yesterday. What are you talking about? The Messiah has come. If the Messiah had come, then the kingdom of God would be here. And so that uh, the uh, the division between in the religion occurred. Uh, it's uh, what the Christians were pointing to was the realization of the the Messiah consciousness, the Messiah, the messianic mind, that quality of, of, of mind of heart that is there within all of us, and that, uh, that Jesus came to, to uh, proclaim and uh, to teach about. And it's, uh, and it's spoken of in that way, that like the kingdom of God is at hand, is within you. But uh, because the, uh, what the, the orthodoxy was expecting was a, in a, a great uh, a messiah of a kingly royal stature who would come and completely change the material world, the legal social systems, remove the Roman domination and so on and so forth, that um, they say, well, he hasn't come. So this is, uh, you know, we don't care who you say this guy is, we don't, we don't accept it. So that, that principle of looking to uh, cure problems 
by, uh, by stressing our inner life is very crucial. Because if we, if we neglect that, if that's not what we do, if our attention goes solely to trying to solve problems on the external level, trying to stop war and conflict in the external sense, then because our hearts are still at war, our hearts are still uh, don't understand, don't know what peace is, don't know how to establish peace between ourselves and others. If we don't know how to establish um, justice, peace, purity in our own hearts, how can, how can we possibly hope to establish in that, that in the world? If we don't know uh, if we don't know ourselves, if we don't know the injustices that we create within our own heart, our judgment of this against that, of liking this, not liking that, if we don't recognize and see that, how on earth can we ever uh, remove injustice from the world? So that this is very much the, the stress of the Buddha's teaching. And, and because of this stress, what you have is then the maximum amount of goodness and change for the better is brought forth into the world. It's like by, uh, by withdrawing the attention from the externals and stressing the internal transformation, the external is actually transformed as much as it possibly can be for the better. Well, this is just uh, my uh, reflections on these things. You don't have to take this as any kind of uh, absolute truth, but this, this is the way that I've, I've seen things working myself. Because when, when our, our mind, uh, when there's peace in the mind, then there's room for wisdom to appear. There's room for true knowledge, true understanding, compassion, wisdom. When the mind is obsessed with its own chattering, its own battles and, and struggles, there's no space there. Any wisdom that does arrive quickly gets whipped up and mixed up with a whirlwind of I and you and I like and I don't like and it should be and it shouldn't be and I remember and maybe next year and, and uh, he should and he shouldn't and they should and we should. And a whole whirlwind, a whole massive maelstrom of... of uh, emotional creations, so that whatever wisdom or insights, helpful thoughts are kind of uh, surging up in there, they get kind of whipped up and, and dispersed and mingled with all of the confusion. Our mind is established uh, through the agency the, of, our, of our physical body. We're born into the world. We experience life uh, as we do uh, because of our birth. In this time, in this place, as human beings, there's uh, the body and the mind, nama and rupa. We experience life through, uh, through the faculties of the, the six senses, out of the, uh, out of the, the material world, the, 
the uh, the suchness, the, kind of the quantum suchness of the material world and the and the uh, nature of the four great elements. Our senses weave together the the great and small, the yellow, pink, blue, hot, cold, salty, sour, sweet, soft, harsh. The whole sensory world is is woven by our our, our eye, our ear, nose, tongue, body, mind, thinking mind. So that this is this is our this is where life is experienced through at the point of this this body, this mind, the nama rupa configuration, and the, the six senses. And it's helpful to. Uh, to realize that with the with talking about these thinking about these in particularly in connection with paticca samuppada dependent origination that uh, these are these two different uh, aspects the uh, the six senses or the, the nama rupa mind and body these are, are just different ways that we can categorize the same patterns of, of experience. So in the, we're, we're, we're just about to come on in the readings to the, the second teaching of the Buddha, the Anatalakana Sutta, the teaching on, on selflessness, and that's based around uh, categorizing experience through the five khandhas, form, feeling, perception, conceptions, consciousness, the five aggregates, the five categories. And then the, uh, the third sermon is then the Buddha uses the six senses, the, the fire sermon. He talks of the, the eye, ear, nose, tongue, body, mind being on fire with greed, hatred, and delusion. So that we have these uh, two different ways of, of, say, slicing up the pie of, uh, of the experience that we have of our existence. Now considering also in the, the first part of the Paticca Samuppada, um, the whole complex web of um, mind and body and uh, the uh, the early steps of the of the Paticca Samuppada are particularly difficult to comprehend and get one's mind around. Uh, if you look at the uh, the whole uh, system, it looks to be a, some kind of temporal sequence, like A B C, um, in some kind of serial pattern, like equal objects all connected together by. Um, particular uh, forces or, or the same kind of connection. But the word pachaya, avicca pachaya, sankara, sankara pachaya, vinyanang, and so on, the pachaya which connects all the different elements, there are many different sorts. Pachaya just means conditioned or uh, conditions or effects, has some form of relationship with. And uh, in the, the the chanting that we do when we do the uh, for the funeral chanting, the Hetu Pachayo, Aramana Pachayo, these are the twenty-four different kinds of Pachaya, twenty-four different ways that one thing can condition another. So that's um, uh, I won't 
bore you and are you know, capable of describing what they, all the different forms are. But basically there's a lot, and they're very different from each other. And so you can have one thing uh, affecting another by um, being like it, being close to it, uh, creating it, or just things arising at the same time, or things arising um, because of the contrast between them. There's a whole vast range of different ways that, that uh, one thing uh, affects and conditions another. And so by understanding this, you're, you're not looking at the, the connections between the links of the Paticca Samuppada in, a, in a, a fixed or limited way. It's not like A creates B, B creates C, C creates D. So these things are woven together in, a, in an intricate web. And uh, particularly in this early area, it can be very confusing. Um, sankhara, you have as uh, the formulating, the, the uh, discriminating tendency, the ten- tendency towards duality or dualism. Then vijnana, you have as six different kinds of vijnana, the eye, ear, nose, tongue, body, mind, consciousness. Then Nama Rupa, you have um, the Rupa, body, form, and the Nama qualities, Vedana, Sanya, Sankara, Vijnana, feeling, perception, conceptions, consciousness. Well, you just had consciousness already, so how come we got it again? And then also, you know, all the things that uh, you know about feeling, feeling, that's uh, physical feelings, so that's, uh, isn't that body consciousness? And perception, sanya, isn't that eye, ear, nose, tongue? Turn the tape over at this point.